This is Megan. I'm Christy. And I'm Auntie B. And we are Homebrew Home Murder Crew. Crew. Welcome back, guys Welcome. and girls, kittens and creeps, um, weirdos and whinos. How the hell are you? You guys, you guys, you guys. What? This is episode 10. Oh my God, this is a milestone. <laughs> it's a milestone. Yes. We have 10 episodes. Uh-huh. I know that seems like pretty insignificant to maybe like just the average listener but like that's a big deal for us it is a big deal there's so much work that goes into doing a podcast and as much fun as it is there is a lot of actual hard work that goes into editing and researching and it is it is a milestone for us i mean it's a it's a fucking commitment (laughs) and i'm still here so i mean (laughs) i'm doing pretty good i'm impressed Normally I'm like one one or two weeks or something. I'm like I'm out. Bye. (laughs) I honestly have like mad respect for these podcasters who do like such in depth research. Oh yeah, and like because holy, I mean this one that I'm going to tell you guys about today is like there's a book on it, and I really wanted to read it for that episode, like or for the recording. Sorry, like I will still read it, but um, and we'll link it in the show notes you know how we do um but obviously like i don't i when am i gonna fucking read a book (laughs) like that takes i have i read a page and then i have to reread it because i wasn't paying attention the only book i think i ever really read was like that book the cole's notes (laughs) like i read that book Oh, boy. oh honey. Oh no. What? Oh honey. <laughs> I'm actually really excited for this episode because after you mentioned that you were gonna do it, mm-hmm. I did like a quick search on it and then I haven't looked okay, it up at all. So it's gonna be completely like a surprise. Also, me. we should probably let our listeners know why number 10 obviously because it's number 10 it's a big deal but we should let them know (coughs) why today's an even bigger deal so this was our first listener request that came through email um from rusty so thank you rusty thanks rusty um I did email you back to see if I could shut you out and you never responded so I just decided to do it anyway so that's okay (laughs) but i'll I'll take the backlash for it whatever but rusty if you have any other cases we see you we hear you and here it is for you and honestly like rusty this case you guys not just rusty but like this this case when i started looking into it and like researching it like my fucking heart my heart oh my god well i didn't bring kleenex am i gonna need kleenex Mm -hmm. Well, you should be fine. There's, I think, well, like we're in a closet. Just That's find true. a piece of clothing oh, and wipe I've your got your sweater it. right here. Yeah, I'll throw it in the laundry. <laughs> so, you guys, um, hi, it's me, Christy Lee. I'm gonna be telling you guys the case of Joe Arity today, and I apologize. I'm a little bit nasally, dealing with like some snow mold situations. Snow mold. Snow mold. Mm, it's snow everything's as shit is just melting here in Calgary, Okotoks area, Alberta. Well, whatever. and you got two dogs on top of it. Two husky dogs. Oh, yeah. yeah. Plus, you know, 
it was bottling day today, so obviously it's consuming wine day. Which bottling! I clearly have an allergy to alcohol, which just, I have this mad inflammatory response to. Whatever you sound hot, just own it. Mm. <laughs> Thank you, honey. <laughs> All right. Are you guys ready to hear about Joe Arity? I am yes. ready. Okay. So we're going to start this um, by discussing the incident that kind of brought this into fruition, if you will. Okay. So we're going to go way back to August 14th, 1936. Dorothy Drain, 15 years old, was attacked along with her 12-year-old sister, Barbara, while sleeping in her Pueblo, Colorado home. Both were struck repeatedly with what police believed to have been a hatchet. Dorothy was also raped. Barbara survived the attack, but sadly, Dorothy did not. Their parents at the time, they were out at a dance or something like that. And they, like, I mean, Dorothy's 15. They're like, yeah, we can go out. Like, Dorothy's fine. We trust her. She's responsible. Totally fine. We're just gone for a couple hours. Came back to find their daughters like this. Wow. Okay. <clears throat> uh, that's like, I can't even wrap my head around people that have to actually live experiences like I that. Know. Yeah. Yeah. So the attack on the young girls drove the town into an absolute uproar, led newspapers to declare that a sex-crazed murderer was on the loose, and set police on the tra trail of any Mexican-looking men matching the description provided by two women who had also claimed to have been assaulted close to the drain house. So this happened, this assault on these two women happened before, and they provided a, a description. I was going to say prescription. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're taking a page out of my Ooh, book, mixing yeah. your words up. So, um, yeah, so Mexican-looking men that they're looking for, okay? I already can kind of tell her this is going just based on that alone, and my heart hurts yeah. already. So police were under tremendous pressure to catch the killer, obviously, because... I mean, this doesn't happen like in this town and, you know, it's, it's these two young girls that it's happened to. So they have a lot of pressure on them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Next, we're going to talk about this dude called Frank Aguilar. Okay. Frank Aguilar. 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 <laughs> Please One say that time. again. One more time. Aguilar. I want you to say it the way you said it the first time. Well, how did I say it? Was it was so funny. Agrubular? Arugula? Arugula! <laughs> oh, I can't do it twice in a row if it was a mistake. <laughs> Frank Aguilar. Okay, so Frank Aguilar is a Mexican man. He was a former WPA worker who had supervised, uh, or sorry, who had been supervised by the Dream Girl's father, and I believe the father's name is Riley, had already been arrested for the crime frank okay? okay so frank was recently fired by the dream girl's father which is motive and barbara had identified him as the attacker aguilar had been arrested during the funeral of dorothy drain and the pueblo police had even recovered the weapon that was used in the crime so aguilar vehemently denied committing the crime at all but they had the murder weapon. Yes. Wow. Aguilar's trial came quickly and it started on December 15th, exactly four months after the crime. After the death sentence would, was handed out, because that's 
what he got. Um, Aguilar was brought face to face with Mrs. McCurdy, 58, who, if you remember, I had said earlier that two women had provided the description of the man. Oh, okay. Yes. So Mrs. McCurdy, 58 years old, who identified Aguilar as a lone attacker in a similar crime that happened two weeks earlier, just three blocks away from the drain crime. So she and her aunt, Sally Crumpley, 72, and I'm sorry, but if Sally Crumpy, Crumpley isn't just like the sweetest name for a 72-year-old Crumpley. woman. Crumpley. Crumpley. I'm saying that one right. Crumpley. Yes. Crumpley. They were sleeping in the same bed when Aguilar attacked. He beat them on the heads just as he had done in the drain home. Like Dorothy Drain, unfortunately, Sally Crumpley did not survive. Oh, no. Yeah. So Frank Aguilar's trial was short. It lasted only seven days, and his execution came quickly, too. So on August 15th, 1937, just two days short of the anniversary of the Dorothy Drain's murder, is when his execution was. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Quick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're just like, bye. <laughs> See <Wow>. ya. <laughs> However, Mr. Sheriff George Carroll enters the story here. Um, he had someone else in custody who had confessed to the killing. Oh, whoa. So on August 26, 1936, Joe Arity was arrested by two railroad detectives and turned over to Sheriff George Carroll. Carroll, like many other law officers, was actively picking up suspects, interrogating them regarding the attacks on the drain girls in Pueblo. And because of Arity's Syrian background, which we'll talk about in a second. His complexion also matched that of the description given of the attacker. Mexican. uh, Yeah. Quote Mexican. Exactly. So now let's talk a little bit about Joe Arity. Arity was born in 1915 in Pueblo, Colorado, to Henry and Mary Arity, who were recent immigrants from Syria who were seeking work. So they obviously heard, like, you know, things aren't good in Syria, you know. They, I think we all know that. Yeah. That's yeah. kind of you remained know, the same. Yeah. The goal is to, you know, have and provide a good family life for yeah. their family, their children, and, and that sort of thing. So um, Henry had heard that there were steel mills that were hiring in Pueblo or in America in general. And so they immigrated. To Pueblo. To Pueblo. Sorry. They <laughs> did not speak English, but Henry took a job with a major steel mill in in Pueblo that he learned was hiring workers, as I had said. Erdi was late to start speaking as a boy, and he never spoke in sentences of more than a few words. So it's kind of like he had a speech impediment kind of thing. Um, could, it's not necessarily a speech impediment, but it's... I would say a speech impediment. I would just say that like he's mostly nonverbal. Nonverbal. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Okay. At five years old, he was not able to speak. His first year of school, he couldn't even engage with the teachers or other students. Mm-hmm. And after he attended one year at elementary school, his principal told his parents to keep him home. Oh, jeez. Uh, saying that he could not learn. Well, that's a great. Like, well, a- and like that's rejection and abandonment in itself. Yeah. Like that's gonna resonate with him. Mm-hmm. In a really negative way. Yeah. It's not great. Real fast. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Real great. fast. <clears throat> so Joe's mother and father were also first cousins, which well, may sorry, have wait, 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 what? Wait. <laughs> wait, hang on. Pause. <laughs> His mother cousins. and father were first, first cousins? Yes. Okay. Can which 
may is, have contributed yeah. to his intellectual disability. May have, may have. Incest? I feel like that might be the main reason. It's, Joe would spend the next three years at home with no education and no interaction with other children. And during this time, his parents would actually have two more children, adding to their financial strain. Of course. Several of Joe's siblings had actually died young, and one of his brothers was also reported to be, okay, quote, a high moron, end quote. And hold on, just let me continue. And Joe Arity himself seems to have also suffered due to his family's inbreeding, obviously. So now let's go back to this high moron thing. Okay. So the word moron was coined in 1910 by a psychologist, Henry H. Goddard, and was derived from the ancient Greek word moros, which meant dull. We obviously lean toward more politically correct terminology these days. So we now call this an intellectual disability. Okay. Yes. See, I didn't know that. Actually, mm-hmm. no, fun fact. When we <clears throat> I know. Yeah, I you know, guys. Right? Always learning this little fun fact. Absolutely. So after losing his job a few years later, Joe's father, Henry, began bootlegging. Bootlegging. <laughs> he ended up in prison for a period of time. So oh. just like save your applause. Pretty. <laughs> okay. My bad. My bad. Still. Joe's mother, Mary, then had to put her focus on obtaining money for the family. And consequently, Joe had gotten even less attention at home, which further impeded his intellectual growth. After his release, Henry appealed to friends and neighbors to help find a place for his son where he could learn. So his neighbors recommended that he speak to the courts to help place Joe in appropriate school. Uh, Joe was admitted at the age of 10 to the State Home and Training School for Mental Defectives. That's what it's called. Oh, wow. Um, It's 300 miles away in Grand Junction, Colorado, where he lived on and off until he was a young adult. Both in his neighborhood and in the school, he was often mistreated and beaten by his peers. (sighs) Joe spoke slowly. He couldn't identify colors. And he had trouble repeating back sentences that were longer than a couple of words. That's got to be so rough mm-hmm. to go through your growing years having a, not disability, but having a... Well, it's an intellectual disability. Right? Yeah, it is yeah. an intellectual disability. I can't imagine how hard it would be to grow up and have that be your every yeah. day and have to be in front of your peers being treated so poorly yeah yeah like exactly it's no wonder why so joe was a passive individual he's like a follower um the superintendent of the state home where joe had lived recalled that he was often taken advantage of by other boys who once got him to confess to stealing cigarettes although he couldn't possibly have done it Formal testing in this facility showed that Joe usually spoke in two and three word sentences. He was not able to repeat four digits. He remained extremely shy and passive. He said that the color red was black, yellow was yellow, blue was green, and green was blue. He sat silently when asked to tell the difference between a fly and a butterfly, a stone and an egg, as well as wood and glass. So he couldn't tell the difference between wood and glass. (laughs) <laughs> he <laughs> that'd be really inconvenient mm-hmm. at, at the wrong time <laughs> <laughs> he 
Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. <laughs> you're not wrong. <laughs> he also sat silently when he was asked to name the days of the week. He never initiated any moves on his own. He only tried to respond to lead the leading of the examiner. Joe was extremely concrete in his thinking and totally unable to think abstractly about anything. Joe would be diagnosed as an, quote, imbecile, end quote, meaning a person of very low intelligence who cannot take care of themselves. And again, obviously, we no longer use this term or this diagnosis. No. Nine months later, Joe's father missed his son. He felt pretty bad that he had sent him off to the school. And, you know, it's 300 miles away. So he asked for his son to be returned home. The request was granted. Upon his return, though, unfortunately, no provisions were made for his education in the home. So he tended to just keep to himself. Um, He would take lonely walks all over town. And these walks continued for about three years. At age 14, the walks came to an end when a probation officer caught a gang of boys performing sexual acts on him. Oh, no. Yeah. The officer... Mm. The officer wrote an angry letter to the court labeling Joe as, quote, one of the worst mental defective cases I have ever seen, end quote. Easy target. Mm-hmm. If your blood's not already boiling. No, it is. Let me continue. Even though it was Joe who was sexually assaulted, the probation officer claimed that Joe was a danger to the public and the boys who assaulted him were never reprimanded. Wow. Yeah actually yeah so the court ordered joe's immediate return to the institution in grand junction now again the sad part is in these days like an individual with an intellectual debility like in its disability sorry in these days in these times that we're talking about was thought to be more of a burden to society than a gang was i believe also can you remind me of the year it's 19 it is 1936 ish and then 37 and then starting yeah no 19 yeah so 1936 going up yeah yeah there's very little understanding of mental health back then that's uh oh that's for sure yeah oh yeah (laughs) so back at the school the staff was warned that joe was a pervert quote unquote And he was continually monitored for sexually deviant behavior for the next seven years. He wasn't allowed in classes with other kids or anywhere for that matter with other kids because he was deemed to be too unstable. So he was mostly just left in his room. And over these seven years, no such sexually deviant behavior was ever noted from Joe. Like, I just want to... Oh, that's angering. (laughs) Blood boiling, I believe is what you said. Yeah, exactly. So during the next seven years of the institution, or during the seven years he was here, his records show that he was incapable of working on the farm crews or sitting in classrooms. Therefore, he was given a day activity. So he was working side by side with a lovely kitchen worker named Mrs. Bowers. Mrs. Bowers reported that Joe was only capable of, quote, tasks of not too long duration can wash dishes do mopping of floors can do small chores and errands he depends on others for leadership and suggestions end quote okay so we like mrs bowers Mm -hmm. yeah she's she's nice Mm -hmm. so far yes 
so, I don't like that. Okay. <laughs> I said so far, Megan. <laughs> so at age 22, he and a few other inmates had watched men riding on top of railroad railroad boxcars that passed the institution. So remember, this is like the, the era of the Great Depression. There's a lot of this sort of thing going on yeah. right so together they wandered off the institution grounds and also jumped on the boxcars they took a 24-hour ride through the mountains to pueblo pueblo, pueblo. sorry later they took the trip back joe was last seen in grand junction he is believed to have jumped onto a boxcar car either that night or the next morning so after that joe had disappeared for at least seven days and there was no documentation of his whereabouts Okay. Okay. So it was during this time that the attacks occurred on the drain girls. Okay. Here we go back to the drain girls. Oh. So Joe reappears when he walked up to a kitchen car of a railroad railroad rail. Why is this word so hard to say? Lots of words hard rail to say. Railroad. <laughs> it's as bad as rural. 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 Oh my God. We're not going down. No, this we're not going down this path. Yeah. So, um, he Joe reappears when he walked up to the kitchen car of a railroad work gang on August twentieth in the East Railroad Yards of Cheyenne, Wyoming. He was dirty and he was hungry, and Mister and Missus Gibson they owned and operated this kitchen car, and so basically, it's like kitchen car is like on the train and they own and operate it and they cook food yep. for the people right yep. on the train right okay. okay um as long as we're all on the same page because these trains yeah. aren't like the trains that we're thinking of these are trains like old school trains mm -hmm. like passenger trains passenger yeah. trains yeah. and yeah yeah, so, yeah exactly yeah. so they took joe in to feed him and joe ended up asking them in his way obviously he's a man of few words because yeah. he can't really communicate but um he was able to ask them if he could actually wash dishes for them in exchange for meals so he did this for six days and then joe had to be let go because they were going to be crossing state lines and he wasn't a registered employee so he was dropped off in cheyenne wyoming okay, okay. so he's in wyoming normally he was in colorado okay yes. so different states Six days later, on August 26th, Joe Arity was arrested for vagrancy by two railroad detectives and turned over to Sheriff George Carroll. Remember George Carroll? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, Carroll, like all law officers in all the towns up and down Colorado's eastern slope, was actively picking up suspects and interrogating them regarding the attacks on the Dream Girls in Pueblo. Yeah. So Joe had no alibi, nor could he communicate his whereabouts during that time. Oh, yeah. He was also never offered a lawyer and he was never read his Miranda rights. And remember, George Carroll, Sheriff Carroll, sorry, is in Wyoming and the murders occurred in Pueblo, Colorado. So this isn't even in his fucking jurisdiction. Oh boy. Right? Okay. Oh, he gets better. Okay. Oh, goodness. So after an hour and a half of questioning, leading questions, might I add, because remember, He's suggestible. Joe is suggestible. Yeah. Um, Carol called a reporter and told the reporter that he had just received a complete confession from for the Pueblo crime from Joe Arity. 
He recited to at least one reporter a long series of wordy, complete sentences that Arity allegedly uttered. According to Carol, Arity was a lone killer and he committed the crime with a club. <laughs> what? Okay. <laughs> so at first, when Pueblo Police Chief J. Arthur Grady received the news of the confession, he was shocked because the real killer, Frank Aguilar, had already been arrested for the crime. So he's like, what the fuck? We already have somebody in custody. Like, Well, and that's what, like... Uh... I'm confused about because it's like they've got somebody locked up in custody for the crime. Oh, we guns to get into it, honey. Okay, we guns okay, to. Okay. So Carol questioned Joe for almost eight hours over the next two days. Carol did not even bother to write down the confession that he got from Joe in the eight hours of questioning. Convenient. On August 27th, Carol told the press about his additional hours of interrogation after the Pueblo officers arrived in Wyoming. According to Carol, quote, Arity kept changing his story, end quote. Really? Hmm. Maybe it's you, Carol. Hmm. <laughs> Maybe. Finally, quote, Arity told the truth, end quote. He said a club was not used in the attack. It was a hatchet head. He also said, because remember, they had found yeah. a murder weapon. And it was an axe or a hatchet, right. right? So he had also said that he did not do the crime alone. He did it with Frank. Air quotes. Uh, this alleged statement was ludicrous for two reasons. Number one, knowing how Joe functioned in tests and being unable to tell red from black, there was no way he could have remembered a person named Frank. Uh, well, and they're also probably counting on all of this too for him not yeah, to be able for sure. to. And number two, because those two words purportedly uttered by Joe Arity came much later, it was an obvious attempt to clean up the story. So they had to be spoon-fed by Carol in order to get the confession that Aguilar refused to give. Yeah. Right? After all those simple two-word statements with Frank and that's Frank served as a confessional connecting wow. him to the murder. I'm so mad right now. I know. <laughs> so, and I, that, that leads to my next point. So perhaps Sheriff fucking Carol Fuck you, Sheriff realized Carol. the same thing that these other boys who had once taken advantage of Arity once had. Joe Arity was extremely susceptible to suggestion and Joe was a people pleaser. So of course he's going to tell the sheriff exactly what he wants to hear. Right? Oh, goodness. So what actually happened here was that the law was just using its power into blaming someone innocent to take the blame for the crime so that the police could get the pressure from the locals and the media off their backs. Okay, and this was 1930-something or other, yeah, and we're in, yeah. what, 2022? I'm pretty sure it's that's still, still a fucking yeah. common theme, everybody. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's eye-opening and depressing. So Arity was frightened by the threats of police officers who said that it was in his best interest to confess to the killing of Dorothy. Otherwise, bad things would happen to him. And the police force abused his mental disabilities and took advantage of his frightened, childlike mentality to make him confess. You think? After the morning's final interrogations, Carol contacted Cheyenne's police chief, Joe K Cahill? Cahill? Oh, whatever. Together, they delivered Arity to the Pueblo Police Department and then to the Colorado State Hospital for safekeeping that night. As if shit wasn't bad, bad enough, enough for Joe, huh. on August 28th, Saul Khan, who was the owner of Khan's loan company, came to the police station, 
faced Joe and claimed that Joe purchased a pistol on Friday, August 14th. So if Joe did purchase a pistol, no one knows what happened to it. And also inmates at the institution aren't allowed to have any cash. So how did he pay for it? And where did he get the money? So it's just like something kind of out of left field that. Also, did you say this guy's name is Khan? K-A-H-N. Yeah, the one that said Khan. that this guy, that Joe yeah. bought yeah. a pistol. Can I just say, Khan! <laughs> yeah, you know it. I've never had an opportunity to say it right now. And I needed to. Anyway, thank you. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> Ladies, this is not the vibe, okay? No. I, I, no. I'm sorry. We're but. keeping it. <laughs> so later at the police station, Aguilar was brought into the room. Carol asked Joe who he was. And again, he responded with two words. That's Frank. And Aguilar exclaimed, quote, I never seen him before, end quote. Of Joe. Yeah. Like, Frank does not recognize Joe. Joe. Yes. Exactly. So, it was Aguilar's fifth day of interrogation at the Canyon City Prison. Aguilar gave a confession that was transcribed and published in its entirety in the next day's Pueblo Chieftain newspaper. Later, Aguilar recanted, saying that Warden Best came to his cell earlier and had told him that terrible things would happen if he didn't talk. Right? Um... And we're going to talk about Warden Best later on. Okay. I don't know yeah. if I like Warden Best yet. Mm. No, he doesn't sound like the best. He's a warden. He doesn't sound like Warden's the best. Warden's <laughs> Oh my God. So during the whole stenographic session, no word from Joe was ever recorded. Really How convenient, right? Yeah. Yeah. There were only six brief questions directed at Aguilar about Joe in the five typed legal sized pages. They were seated throughout the document. If Joe was present as claimed by district attorney French Taylor, and if he was as quote, highly verbal and well-focused end quote, then why didn't Taylor turn him, turn to him and ask him to answer these questions instead of addressing them to Aguilar? Yeah. Right. Exactly. Here are some of the questions that Frank was asked. Question, while you and Joe were at the house, you got the hatchet? Answer, yes. Question, did you and Joe hide there in the bushes? Answer, yes, sir. Question, when you got up from finishing assaulting the big girl, what did Joe do? Answer, I got out on the side. Question, then Joe assaulted the girl, didn't he? Answer, yes. Question. Did you put the hatchet at the side of the house in a basket? Answer. Yes. Question. Was Joe with you then? Answer. Yes. Question. Did Joe stay with you all night or did he leave? Answer. He left. Question. Did you tell Joe to keep quiet about this? Answer. Yes. Question. Did you see Joe after that? Answer. No. Aguilar's complete transcribed confession is printed in uh, the book Deadly Innocence. And we're going to talk about that book a little bit later. Okay, and that was the book that That's you the book mentioned. that I was talking about. Yeah, okay. So Aguilar signed the transcript with an X. Well, he doesn't know how to really... 
No, that's Frank. Oh, Frank okay. Aguilar. Okay. So that was Frank's like confession. Frank was just being questioned. Yes. Right. Yeah. And answering. Right. Not Joe. But so they transcribed this confession from Frank and then Frank signed it with an X. Okay. The signatures of six witnesses followed Frank's mark. Interestingly, Joe signed Ardy, that's A-R-R-D-Y, not A-R-R-I-D-Y, Ardy. Yeah. He signed it wrong. He didn't even spell his own name right. In very small letters at the bottom of the last page and in the left margin. However, no witnesses signed after him. Frank had six witnesses sign after him. Joe had none. So anyone could have really potentially written that. I mean, uh-huh. you want to fake your writing, you can fake your writing. Right. Exactly. So if, also, if Arity had been in the room during the confession, one would think he could answer questions for himself. Well, yeah, that exactly. Why yeah. is he signing off on this yeah. conf- when he should be exactly. giving his own? Right. So again, Carol did not even bother to write down the confession he got from Arity. And during the trial, even the prosecution noted, quote, you had to, what we commonly say, cry everything out of him, end quote. Carol's leading questions, including asking Arity if he liked girls, then immediately following up with, quote, if you like girls so well, why do you hurt them, end quote. The written confession wasn't written by Joe as he didn't know how to write. And it mentioned that he had hit two girls in the head with a baseball bat. Although the forensics team said that the head injuries were made with the use of a large blade due to the deep cuts that would be impossible to inflict with a wooden bat. How the hell do you mistake a like, blunt force trauma to the head with a knife? With a baseball bat. We're going to talk about that. he doesn't even know the difference between colors and an egg and a rock. We're right. forgetting that. Part. No, but Carol is making this shit up. Yeah. Carol is yeah. saying that okay. he's he's leading or giving or fuck. Carol is basically making him suggestible him? or yeah. cursing him to confess. And Carol doesn't didn't even know at this right. point that yeah. it, the weapon was an axe or a hatchet. Yeah. So he's he saying, yeah, saying, yeah, it was bad. It was bad. It was yeah. bad. Yeah. We're going to talk about right now why why sheriff carroll might be saying these sorts of things okay let's do it okay so what i think happened here is that the law knew that they had messed up in their own made-up arguments so they decided to condemn both frank and joe for the murder of dorothy drain and the attempted murder of barbara Jane, as well as the assault of two other women but get this there is an a one thousand dollar reward back in then it, that's in a lot it for the arrest of joe arity or whoever so basically what happened is carol from wyoming and whoever the fuck it is from fucking pueblo fucking pueblo split the fucking cash because oh. they both made an arrest okay so they were in it they were in cahoots with each other so that they could get the money they could get the yeah. money and they could split it yeah oh that's okay. so sketchy so sketchy yeah so carol changed the narrative constantly and just completely steamrolled the investigation so that he would look good and he has a habit of like fucking showboating the shit out of shit 
Not yeah, you heard that right. The shit out of shit. The shit out okay? of shit. And also very TM. common yes. theme amongst people Exactly. Today. So, yeah. <laughs> However, at this point, it was clear that Frank was the real criminal and Joe was not. Although yeah. Frank kept saying yeah. that Joe did it and Joe's naive mind was approving of this argument mm -hmm. because all he wants to do is fucking please people. Mm -hmm. Oh, I like, honestly, you guys, this case breaks my fucking yeah. heart. It aches. I've never wanted to hug somebody so much more and I'm sorry, but it doesn't get better. Okay. So Sheriff Carroll would later testify from his memory because fucking asshole didn't write nothing down. Yeah. So Sheriff Carroll would later testify from his memory because there was no notes and no witnesses for most of the interrogation with Joe. A harrowing story about the night of the attack. He said that Joe had spied on the girls from the bushes outside. And after he saw the parents leaving, he snuck inside and hit the girls in the head, took his clothes off, assaulted Dorothy, dressed and left. During the prosecutor's evidentiary presentations, Sheriff Carroll took the stand five separate times because he's a showboater. Uh -huh. The transcript shows how Carroll was allowed to launch forth as a riveting storyteller. He testified that Joe was in complete control of his thoughts and speaking in clear sentences that described the colors on the walls in the bedroom and the colors of the nightgowns that the girls wore and even the colors of the dresses the girls would be wearing when they went to the Sunday church services. And although Barbara Drain had testified at Frank's trial, she would never be called to testify at Joe's. Why? What the fuck? Because they want their fucking money. Yeah, because he obviously didn't do it. He doesn't know colors. Yeah. I know. That it's it all, makes no he sense. He doesn't talk in complete It makes no sentences. sense. He's like just an you, easy target. If you yeah. were to yeah. look at like his diagnosis from the school and everything like that, yeah. like you would clearly see this, right? But just like you said, he's an easy target. Carol wants the fucking money. Pueblo wants the fucking money. And it's fucking annoying. Yeah. Fucking Pueblo. So the Joe Arity that Carol described was hugely different from the Joe who often spoke in unfinished sentences and didn't even know who Franklin D. Roosevelt was. He was the president at this time. Right? Okay, thank you for clarifying. Okay. <laughs> I knew he was a president at some point. <laughs> Nor did he know what a hatchet was or even that his own father was present in the courtroom. He had no fucking idea. What? Oh my God. It should have been clear to everyone involved in the case that Joe was not guilty and his confession was the result of a man who had interrogated him and coerced the confession. Jesus. Despite the weakness of the evidence, Joe was found guilty and sentenced to death. No. What? Not actually. Like death? Death? Like, like dead, dying death. Like unalived. Unalived. Jesus. No longer living. Joe seemed to be blissfully ignorant of what was going to happen to him. Well, yeah. He, this is, this is heartbreaking. This is heartbreaking. So oh. while he was in jail and awaiting his death sentence, Ugh. he spent his days playing with toys, oh. cheerfully chatting to reporters and other condemned killers. Just completely oh unaware God. of the actual completely. situation yeah. he's in. And we'll get into that a little bit more 
too. But we're going to talk right now about um, somebody named Gail L. Ireland. And he was an American attorney and a politician from Denver, Colorado. He served as the Attorney General of Colorado from 1941 to 1945. And he was later appointed as Colorado Water Commissioner. Ireland was also proud of his pro bono work during his law career. And as such, Ireland took up Joe's case or cause and gained nine stays of execution. Wow. In the end, all appeals failed. Oh, no. He had written during the case, quote, Believe me when I say that if he is guest, it will take a long time for the state of Colorado to live down the disgrace. Yeah. Unquote. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Like, this is take the weak and vulnerable. Take the weak and vulnerable. Vulnerable? <laughs> oh my God, you guys. Anyway, you know what I'm trying to say. Yep. This is like a classic case of that. Yeah, yep. absolutely. And just pin it on them. Yep. So, do you guys remember earlier in uh, the story when I said, um, Warden Best. Yes. Yeah. Who's not the best? Like he's like, not the best. <laughs> no. So Roy Best was the prison warden at the Colorado Territorial Correctional Facility in Canyon City, Colorado. He was high, a highly regarded warden. He's However, nice. this is not to say that he was nice or treated all prisoners well. By the early 1950s, word of Best's floggings and abuse had reached the public and spurred significant public disgrace. And in response, Governor Daniel I.J. Thornton launched an investigation and called for Best's removal. A federal indictment followed and Best faced a trial for violating his prisoners' constitutional rights, among other misdeeds. But wait, there's more. He was also known for playing himself in a 1948 film noir crime oh, film called Canyon City. Are you kidding? He plays himself? <laughs> Excuse me as we remove the ego. <laughs> like, wait for fuck. the next twist. Oh, God. Wait for the next twist. For the sake of Joe's case, we like Warden Roy Best. Why? We like him. I'm going to tell you why. Okay? Well, then tell me why. So well, while held on death row during the appeals process, Joe often played with a toy train that was given to him by prisoner, by prisoner, by prison warden Roy Best. And when Joe was informed of his impending execution, he seemed much more interested in his toy trains. Prison Warden Best reported that, quote, Joe Arity is the happiest man who ever lived on death row, end quote. Joe was liked and treated well by both the prisoners and the guards. Okay. Best became one of Joe's supporters and joined in the effort to save his life. He was said to have, quote, cared for Joe like a son, end quote, regularly bringing him gifts. Before Joe's execution, he said, quote, he probably didn't even know he was about to die. All he did was happily sit and play with a toy train I gave him, end quote. He probably didn't know. I guarantee you he didn't know. Oh, my heart. So for his last meal, I he... feel like that's also, not to interrupt mm, you, yeah. but I feel like that's also a little too late. Like, I appreciate that Bess got there and realized that there was a right that needed, uh, sorry, there was a wrong that needed to be made right. But at that point, it's too little too late. Well, and you have to remember, like, Warden Best didn't have any say in his, like... Yes, that's true. No trial or anything does. like that, yeah. right? Yeah. So, but as soon as, as soon as Joe got into the prison system, 
like best was by his side and like he was like he knew he's like i know you're innocent and he yeah. was by his side and, and he supported him and that. advocated for him exactly better late than never i guess yeah so for joe's last meal obviously joe doesn't understand what the last meal is so no. the they just gave him his favorite meal which was ice cream so when questioned about his impending execution, he showed, quote, blank bewilderment, end quote. He did not understand the meaning of the gas chamber. He told Warden Best, he said, quote, no, no, Joe won't die, end quote. Aww. Oh, God. And heartstrings. I'm just like waiting for you to be like, and then they stopped the execution. No? No. <laughs> that, uh, that silence. <laughs> that silence says it all. Before being taken away to the chamber, Joe had not finished his ice cream, and he requested for the remaining ice cream to be refrigerated <gasps> oh, so that he no. could eat it later. Because oh. he didn't understand that he was going to be executed He truly soon, had no and idea. he wouldn't return. Yeah. He had no idea. He was reported to have smiled while being taken to the gas chamber. Because oh he didn't know what was happening. Momentarily nervous, he calmed down when Warden Best grabbed his hand and reassured him. No. Oh, no. I can't. And members of the victim's family did not witness the execution. Uh, Joe's mother did um, visit Joe in prison. I can't remember if she was at the execution or not, but his father had died a couple oh. of years before. Yeah. No one would blame her if she didn't. So... On January 6, 1939, after happily giving his beloved toy train to another inmate, oh. Erdy was led to the gas chamber, where he grinned as the guards strapped him into the chair. His execution was swift, although Warden Best is reported to have cried in the chamber. Joe was 23 years old when he died, but he had the IQ of a six-year-old. Oh, my God. Um, another thing too, when he was in prison and he had this toy train, he would like drive it around his prison cell and like crash it in to things and stuff and be like car crash, car crash or something. Like and I'm picturing like a also, legitimate like, child right yeah. now. Just and he would also like pass his train like through the his prison cell to other inmates and they'd like wheel it back to him. Yeah. And it just like a back and forth thing. Because it was they, obvious that he was And the prisoners understood his understood mentality. That. Everybody did. Everybody did. Well, Except yeah, everybody for did. fucking Carol. Sorry, yeah. everybody understood for it. There was a thousand dollars. A thousand dollars split yeah. between two people, five hundred bucks. I don't care what the value of that was in the nineteen thirties. Yeah. I don't give a fucking shit about that. For for that amount for you're literally placing a price tag on this poor boy's future and his life because you want the money. Oh my yeah. God. And you want the fame. You want to be in the tabloids. You want to be in the newspapers to be the guy that caught the killer. So what's, air quotes, heavy air quotes here. So what's more sad and pathetic that this happened or that this was, uh almost 100 years ago and it's still happening today yeah well and that's the thing and but you know what there is some good to come out of this okay. so in june of 2007 68 years later 
about 50 supporters of Arity gathered for the dedication of a tombstone that they had commissioned for his grave at Woodpecker Hill in Canyon City's Greenwood Cemetery near the, pri- near the state prison. Joe's case is one of a number that received new attention in the face of research into ensuring just interrogations and confessions. And in addition, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that it was unconstitutional to apply the death penalty to convicted persons who were mentally disabled. Mm -hmm. A group of supporters, the same group of supporters, formed the nonprofit Friends of Joe Arity. And worked to bring new recognition to the justice of his, or sorry, to the injustice of his case, in addition to commissioning that tombstone for his grave. Can we have a collective cheers on that? Here's to people keeping his story alive. Attorney David A. Martinez became involved and relied on Robert Persk's book, Deadly Innocence. Again, uh-huh. link that in the fucking show notes. Okay, I get it. I need to yeah. read. Okay. Yeah. About Joe's case, as well as other materials compiled by the friends and his own research to prepare a 400-page petition for the pardon from Governor Bill Ritter, a former district attorney in Denver. Based on the evidence and other reviews, Ritter gave Joe a full and unconditional pardon in 2011, saying, quote, Pardoning Joe Arity cannot undo this tragic event in Colorado history. It is in the interest of justice and simple decency, however, to restore his good name. Hundred percent. Full body chills. Yes. Because it doesn't matter how long injustice has existed, justice at some point needs, and that's what makes me feel good is to know that it's been acknowledged. It's his name's been restored that's so i'm gonna start crying because it's so important that these you know what i'm done just go i get it girl like i reading this case like i had such a hard time with this case yeah it i'm so happy that this was brought to my attention because i had no idea about joe arity and oh my god when you see pictures of him like he is just the sweetest most precious thing that his memory must be protected at all costs oh, no. <laughs> like you guys need to see his picture he's the cutest oh but you know and it's, it's gonna it's... break your heart even more because yeah. you're gonna see him with his fucking toy train and it's gonna rip you apart okay but like these injustices are not talked about enough no and there are so many other people innocent like joe that are put to death all for the sake of the ego that exists among many within the criminal justice system and if this story has touched you i strongly recommend visiting the website friendsofjoearity.com which we will link in the show notes of course of course and here you're going to find references photos even poems and you'll get to meet Joe's friends, the ones that helped to clear his name and provide him with the proper respect and dignity that he deserves. Amazing. That's oh. awesome. Uh, it's not awesome that this is uh, even a thing that we have to sit here on a podcast and discuss. Yeah. However, it is awesome that it can be that long after. That long after. And there are still people fighting to clear his name, to right a wrong, to provide justice where injustice yeah. has survived before, you know? Yeah. And 
that's what I mean by awesome. And I think that's kind of why we do what we do. Absolutely. And that's the thing is like, we try to be the voice for those that don't have one. And, you know, we don't know every case that's out there. And that's why we implore you guys to like, if you have a case that you want talked about that you want to put out there for the masses to hear email us email us whatever connect with us on our socials which we'll provide you at the end here but like we are happy to look into it for you and it's not just for cloud it's not just for popularity or anything like that we do this because we are passionate about the cases that we talk about i just sidebar i wonder if like Stephen King got the idea for the Green Mile from this case, like, or just like bits of it. Mm. Because that would like, be interesting to look into and research. I got like Green Mile vibes yeah, when eh? you were. I didn't even think of that. Yeah. Also, this would be the second time that we've referenced Green Mile because I vaguely remember Mr. Jangles oh, Mr. being <laughs> talked yeah. about on my voice. <laughs> oh my god! Oh. I will. Okay, ladies, I am going to say this. Christy, you did an absolutely amazing job of taking a fan request that was emailed into us that we had a case that we had no idea about whatsoever. And, you know, bringing light to it, bringing education and information to it. So thank you very much because I would have never, and you know what? Thank you, Rusty, as well out there, our fan, our listener. And please, if I missed anything or if I got something wrong or something like that, like, please let me know so that we can correct it the next time we come to you. Absolutely. And thank you for even suggesting it. Yeah, absolutely. That was a great case. Yeah. Any of our other fans out there, if you have a case you're really into, you have an unsolved case that you want to bring attention to, anything of that sort, just feel free to email us. Yep. Paranormal and dark history, too. We're all about that. Yep. We're going to get there. Yeah. Um, This case is my favorite one that I've done so far. Yeah, like this it is a good one. really hit me in the fucking feels. Oh. Well, and you know, I I really it helped me. You know, it really hit me in the feels too. And I think it's kind of it's tonight feels like a bit of a different vibe, a little bit of a different atmosphere. Yeah. And I feel like it is because it's technically our tenth episode that we've recorded, edited, released. But we also made a TikTok video. <laughs> we also made our first TikTok video. Yes. Yeah, no, I'm just, yeah. I'm really grateful that we have this platform and I'm grateful we have fans listening mm-hmm. and sending requests and mm-hmm. liking, sharing. Yeah, share, share, that. share. And we yeah. just want to get better. So like, please even email us or whatever, contact us and let us know what we can do better because we are here for you guys and we're still learning. Yeah, we're still learning. But um, you can find us on our socials. Yes, our socials. You can find us on Facebook at Homebrew Murder Crew. You can find us on Instagram at Homebrew Murder Crew. You can find us on TikTok at Homebrew Murder Crew. You can also send us those emails. Our email is homebrewmurdercrew at gmail.com. Thanks, everybody, for listening tonight. Thank you, lovelies. Thank you. We will talk to you again in... Two weeks. Two weeks. Two weeks. Two weeks. Right. Bye. Bye. Love you. Love you. Love you.